Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach. Always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now, I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then. And you're really reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Well, welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And you know, we always say, do you want what it will take to make your life right? And that is a tough question because I'm not going to I'm not going to lie to you. Sex addiction recovery is tough. It means totally reorganizing your life so that you can live the life that you've always wanted to live. And a lot of times you're not even sure what that life is because you have done this for so long that you absolutely realize that you don't know what a life is that has values and ideals, accountability. And and I get that. You know, somebody else would go, well, what the heck's wrong with him But or her? But what I know to be true is that it can be really tough when you've lived a life of lies, when you don't even know what the truth is, when you're not really ready to give up your best friend. And as a result, what I mean by best friend, it's the sexual addiction in general. It's the porn. It's the prostitutes. It's the websites. It's the chat rooms. It's the massage parlors. It's um, all that risky behavior that produces dopamine in the brain that lights you up like a Christmas tree. You know, I was explaining tonight at one of my groups, I said, I know that you guys came in here thinking that you were bad people and you had moral improprieties that made you perverted. 
But in essence, this is a brain addiction. This is brain science. And when you've learned how to light up your brain in certain ways, it takes a whole host of recovery tools to turn that around. And so I don't blame you for not knowing what it is that you can do to make your life better. But what I do believe is that it is imperative for you to get the skills you need and trust the process of recovery, of this radio show, of your CSAT, your Certified Sexual Addictions Therapist, to know how to make it better. You know, Patrick Carnes said, you are not strong enough to beat this. You have to have a committee. And a committee means you have to have fellowship. You have to have a mentor, a guide, a sponsor. You have to have a therapist who knows what in the heck he or she is doing. It would be really helpful for you to have a sexual addiction group. A whole group of people that care about you, that want you to be different, and that are going to share what they've done to make their life special. And tonight, I feel very excited because we have Reese on the show, and he is going to be talking about compulsive pornography And he knows that pornography can ruin an addict's life. It's not just an addiction that ruins family life, relationships, and all aspects of life. It is the entire process of lying, cheating, and deceiving yourself and the people that you love. You know, that first recovery task is breaking your own denial. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. I'm going to be interviewing Reese, who's a Christian counselor who helps addicts break free from porn addiction. He's learned how to use his life struggle and create purpose out of his life. His story is absolutely fascinating. And he shares 100% the struggles that he's engaged in. You know, he probably started out like many of you before the Internet was popular. Um, He was enslaved to magazines in the mid-'70s, Playboy, Penthouse, Hustler. And then VCRs came around, and he was going to adult bookstores and getting those kind of movies. And then cable television was developed, and he watched soft porn and what I actually think looks a lot like hard porn on HBO and Cinemax in the 80s. And then while stationed in Germany in the Army in the mid-1980s, he found that there was a porn movie theater on almost every block. Not only did he attend those movies, but he even would engage in brothels, in booths in which you could sit and prime yourself for a few minutes before going in with a prostitute. I mean, this man has experienced the atypical 
norm. This is what it was like to be stationed in Germany. In addition to that, when, when the Internet came out, he realized there was a whole new way of life that was anonymous, affordable, and accessible at any time. He was so caged to his sex and porn addiction that it warped his sense of expectations that surrounded his human relationships. He lost his first marriage, his children, and his full-time job, which was ministry. He knows the devastation of being a sex addict and the fear and alienation, the shame that follows him around. And now that he's in full-fledged recovery, he also knows the freedom and the liberation that comes from finding your recovery tools and renewing your faith. And that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So I am very excited to have him on the show because clearly um, he is a man that's been through it all and he wants to help people. And that's why he has agreed to do our radio show. So, you know, I know that this is an up-and-coming field. I mean, there is no doubt that clearly this kind of stuff is really changing. And just a couple weeks ago, we found out that the Global Health Organization had identified sex addiction as an epidemic. Okay. So, I wanted to talk to you about the fact that it is so hard when you're in a relationship to know what to do, to know when to be honest and how to handle it. So, let's just talk about relationships for just a second because there are so many people that wonder, do I turn over my phones? Do I practice giving my wife a GPS? I mean, am I really going to let her be my parent or my warden? Well, I ask you to consider it from a different point of view. And if you're single, I know it's way harder for you because you don't have anybody to be accountable to. But clearly, as my colleague says, it's important to help the couple to understand that he can help her feel safe and that once she's experienced the feelings of betrayal, the recovering addict can lean into empathy and bring empathy back online by helping her to know that he's being 100% honest, authentic, and transparent. So, Mary Lee, who is a wonderful CSAT therapist, says, I often use this analogy with frustrated addicts to try and build some insight, enlightenment, and empathy. 
If a dear friend or family member stole your ID and Social Security card, assumed your identity, or created a new identity using your information, you know, how would you feel? Betrayed? Violated? Shocked? Enraged? You'd say to yourself, how could this have happened to me? How could someone have done such a thing? And what would happen if you were told by the police that it was your son, your brother, your father, or your best friend? Wow, what a double betrayal. So after you clear your name, after your loved ones apologize to you, and you begin to heal from the traumatic betrayal, would you be checking your bank account, your phone, the locks on your door? I mean, wouldn't you want to make sure that you were 100% safe? Well, that's the same experience that a partner feels. And he or she needs to know that there are things that you can do. There are systems in place where you buy can make her feel safe. And, boy, that can look like a lot of different things. Um, We call them safety requests. So a, a partner might say, my next safety request is that I have access to your smartphone as needed over the next year in order for me to feel safer in the relationship. It's not like she's demanding the phone, but she's saying, this would help me feel safe. And, you know, oftentimes it can feel invasive to the addict or if the addict has a therapist because this isn't something that we instinctually know how to do. We're all told to maintain our privacy. But an addict really has no privacy if he or she wants to stay in the relationship, not for the first one or two years. They really have to say, what can I do to put my partner safe? And, boy, that is a tough situation. It feels foreign. It feels like the partner may have too much power. And I'm the first to say, hey, there may actually be the need for a power differential until that partner can feel safe. So that's a little hint from Carol the Coach. And I am so happy to be with you tonight. Now, I am going to be talking with Reese, and Reese has a story to tell that's absolutely riveting. Is this Reese? This is Carol Jurgensen Sheets. Is this Reese? Okay, I don't hear Reese, but how about this? Might this be Reese? Hi. Hi, Reese. Can you hear me? This is Carol Jurgensen Sheep, and you're on Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Hi, Carol the Coach. It is great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. 100%. And boy, I just really appreciated your story, and I wanted you to be able to share it with our listening audience because I, I really believe that it instills hope, strength, and um, recovery for so many people that wonder if they're ever going to get well. So do you mind if I just check in with you 
and ask you about your relationship with porn. Sure. Where, where, where would you like me to begin? Do you have any questions that you would like to ask specifically about that or just me just give an overview of what happened? Well, I want to know, did you just discover porn or was there some kind of gateway? Because I gave our listening audience a little bit of your history, what it was like for you in the mid-70s and, and <laughs> then when VCRs came out and then when HBO and Cinemax came out and then, of course, when you were stationed over in Germany. So can you tell us a little bit about when you first discovered porn and whether you believe that there was some kind of gateway to that? Well, I always tell people that the gateway for me um, didn't actually start with pornography itself. Um, The stage was kind of prepped early on in my life when around eight or nine years of age, I started to get heavily bullied in elementary school. I was overweight. I was an easy target. And because of that, um, I had a lot of people bullying me, and it lowered my security uh, you know, my feeling of safety, even in my neighborhood, I couldn't even go out and play without being bullied um, by these kids. Um, a lot of times they pushed me, um, beat me up. Um, sometimes they would ambush me. And, and the stage was set to really lower my self-worth, my self-value. And then when I actually discovered pornography, um, I discovered it um, out with some of the friends that I did have that didn't bully me. Um, we knew that there was this location near a store where I lived outside of Detroit, Michigan, and um, it was a dumpster that it seemed to be the drop-off point for guys that were done with their magazines and didn't want to be found out. And so we would find Playboys and Penthouses and Hustlers in there. Um, Around the mid-'70s is actually when Hustler came out and some of the more hardcore magazines started entering uh, into the mainstream media. And um, and so it wasn't just, you know, naked women in still shots, but, it, you know, there was the real hardcore stuff that left nothing to the imagination. And that was kind of my first introduction, probably around 10 or 11 years of age. And that just, you know, we often use in this industry this, this concept of hijacking the brain. That really hijacked the brain. That was something that just took me and threw me for a loop. And when you're that age, you know, all of this information kind of gets passed down from older generations and older generations, and you learn about masturbation. And, um, you know, I put the two and two together after I became somewhat aware of what that all meant, uh, along mm-hmm. with health class. And, uh, and, and if I didn't have pictures of pornography um, to go and steal away and, uh, you know, self-gratify, which is a term I normally use, um, you know, there was always the five-inch thick J.C. Penney catalog or the Sears catalog that had the lingerie up in the front that aroused me just as much. And that's pretty much how the door opened for me to get into pornography. It was mainly uh, magazines because then there wasn't cable TV, there wasn't VCRs, you know. But as you mentioned earlier, with the advent of that, it just continued to increase in my life. Well, absolutely. And so... Obviously, that's when you developed a curiosity or a fascination with porn. How often would you say you viewed porn initially in your adolescence? Um, Initially, it was, you know, touch and go. You know, my friends that lived on the street, their 
fathers had a stack of magazines in their closet. Uh, you know, we hear that story all the time in the industry, just that's how a lot of people have found it. So whenever I was at a friend's house and we knew that there was magazines hidden, um, we would find that. And so that would be very much maybe weekly. Um, but as I was obviously following my curiosity, uh, what was actually kind of the mainstay in between the times that I would see porn, maybe about once every week or something like that, um, would be those magazines in the lingerie. And that's the thing that continued to keep my arousal very high. Uh, so initially, with just having access to the magazines, you know, whenever I could and whenever I was like with friends, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad didn't have those magazines hiding in the closet. And so I had to go over my other friend's house who, whose fathers had that kind of stuff. So initially I would say, you know, maybe a couple times a week max. Okay. And so then did anybody know that you were doing this? Did anybody ever catch you in early adolescence or late adolescence? Uh, no one other than my friends who were doing the same thing. You know, there wasn't really any discussion about what that was. It was obviously, um, you know, initially curiosity, uh, sexual curiosity, sexual experimenting on your own body. Um, but, you know, as far as my folks knowing anything about that, as far as my older sister knowing anything about that, or even the parents, um, you know, from which we got the magazines, nobody, it didn't seem to us that anybody anybody knew anything about it. Um, being raised in a Christian home, you always had that stigma that you think you were doing something wrong and you shouldn't be doing it. And so you kind of felt ashamed of it a lot. And so you didn't really want to talk about it um, because you were worried that you would get in trouble. And uh, so nobody, nobody, even as I was growing older, uh, we didn't really talk about it in our youth group or in church or anything along those lines. Um, it was kind of taboo back then in the 70s and early 80s. Well, I didn't know. I didn't know if you ever told anyone. I mean, I know there were probably that group of boys that kind of shared this stuff or experimented together at looking at it, but it didn't sound like you really talked much about it. No, I didn't. There, you know, it, it was all just, uh, you know, it was all just surreal. It was all in fun. It was, of course, there was a real strong desire that was building in me on a regular basis to want to see that stuff. Um, but you, you know, you weren't, you weren't really looking at it back then as a young, a younger child, you weren't looking at it as necessarily problematic or starting something that was going to be problematic in your life. And so, um, but, but you, you knew enough to know that you probably shouldn't be doing it. Uh, it was probably wrong, but it wasn't a big deal. And so you didn't really feel like you had to tell anybody about it. Okay. So then, when do you think that you realized that viewing pornography affected your sense of self and your relationships with women? Well, you know, a lot of it came in hindsight a little bit later on uh, as I grew older into an older adult. But um, looking back on that, um, I found myself very early on in any kind of dating relationship wanting to take it to the next level. Even my, my first girlfriend that I had, I was 13 years old. Um, we both went to youth group together. And of course you always kind of, <laughs> you always kind of steal away around some other side of the church and you make out and all this kind of stuff. But, but I always found myself wanting to go to the next level pretty quickly, even at age 13. I mean, I wanted to 
be fondling the girl's breasts. Um, I wanted to be putting my hand down the pants and being able to touch all the things that I had seen in pornography. And again, uh, maybe call it uh, the male compartmentalized brain, but I didn't really put two and two together. Um, it was just this sense that I wanted to feel uh, that part of the woman, uh, that part of the girl. And uh, as I began to get a little bit older and um, it went from just really heavy petting and fondling to um, actually uh, going into uh, having intercourse and things of that nature. It was just this need. And it wasn't just pornography per se. It wasn't just the pornography addiction, but um, as those of us have been kind of trained in this industry, we know a little bit about the love and sex addiction, uh, things that are birthed out of real, real need in our life. Um, we didn't have a certain connection or a certain investment or whatever it was, maybe with our family of origin. And so I, I began to just really, really need to be sexual with these women, or I, I guess I should say girls back then, that I was dating through high school. And, uh, and you know, but, but I, I would never go all the way. You know, there was, there was this little aspect in there that I didn't want to go all the way, even though inside of me I could feel myself kind of really aroused to the point that I kind of would want to go all the way. Um, I would usually find myself stopping in my various dating relationships, after I would go home, then I would kind of finish the job, so to speak, um, with either pornography or some type of thing that, that would arouse me. Um, but very early on, Carol, I, I, I wanted to be very physical and very connecting um, with all of the girls uh, that, I, that, that I was dating. I didn't, I didn't lose my virginity, so to speak, or give my virginity away until I was about 19 years of age and I was in the military and I had spent quite a bit of time over in Germany. And, uh, you know, there was a sex theater on every corner, a brothel on every corner over there. Um, I used to say there was as many brothels on corners over in Germany that there were Southern Baptist churches in the South, you know, I mean, it was like everywhere. Yeah. And, um, and, and so it began to really have a major impact on me. And when I lost my virginity, I didn't lose it to somebody that I even cared about. I was uh, I was three sheets to the wind and driving around Nashville, Tennessee, drunk as a skunk with my friend, and we ended up uh, meeting up with this pimp who introduced us to these prostitutes, and that's how I lost my virginity at age 19. So, um, yeah, very early on and all through my dating years uh, up until that point and even beyond that, uh, every relationship that I was in, I had to demand some type of sexual activity from, from the women that I was in relationship with. Well, and what I just heard you say is that it came out of at least two um, origins. One might have been that um, gap or hole in your own childhood, something that was, went unmet, where sexuality got to fill that up. And then the second thing was exposure, exposure to magazines, videos, and then experiences that said this is normal, natural, and necessary. So you put those two things together, you've taught your brain to expect this, and then you have these experiences based out of need, and it can become compulsive. Exactly, and that's, that's, that's what happened. It was uh, moment by moment, uh, instance by instance, and the next thing you do is you just find yourself, it's the most normal, natural thing that you are demanding uh, some sexual um, 
you know, some sexual activity from, from the people you're with. And, and the thing about pornography is that you watch it long enough and the novelty of pornography long enough, you're able to choose whatever you want to want. You'll, you're able to choose the, the, you know, the various scenarios that you are drawn to. Uh, it continues to take you higher and higher and higher to more riskiness and, and to more in-depth uh, you know, imagery, more extreme imagery. And you start to build this sense of entitlement in your life because porn's never going to say no to you. You're not going to watch videos of pornography and, and suddenly the actors are going to get up, you know, off of what they're doing, come over to the camera and say, no, 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 you can't go any further. Um, they're going to give you everything that you want and you come to expect that this is real life because you didn't know anything else as you were growing up from a young child into puberty and so on. And, and you begin to expect that your relationships are basically going to be built on sexuality. And, and it's real funny, Carol, when you find that there's a lot of girls out there that don't want to go in that direction, especially early on in a relationship, and you have this kind of cognitive dissonance. You know, you, you come to this place where you, you expect that it's supposed to be sexual. That's why you're with this person. You want to have sex with them or you want to experience some type of sexual arousal with them, and then you end up dating girls or women that aren't like that. They aren't like the girls in the videos. And you kind of have this distorted thing going on in your brain. Like, uh, wait a minute. I, I thought this is what women wanted, you know? And so. And I was going to ask you because sometimes when you viewed enough pornography and you believe that that's the way it is, you actually groom females to expect that same thing too. So what I hear you saying is no, there was really some dissonance. Those girls were not um, in any way, shape, or form exhibiting any of that pornographic behavior. So then there was this real discrepancy of what you had seen and what you believed sex to be versus what was real. So now let me just ask you, how do you think viewing porn affected your relationships with women? Well, it, it made me an objectifier. You know, it made me someone that um, just continued to utilize the relationship to fill my need, uh, whether it was a, a need of not feeling loved and needing to be appreciated, um, uh, or if it was just my need to have my sexual arousal satisfied. Um, that's pretty much what it was. Now, it wasn't like I had totally seared my conscience in this whole deal, but, you know, I always had this air of, respect and wanting to do right, uh, you know, by, by the girls that I was dating. I, I wanted to be early on in my life um, before it really took hold. I was, you know, in high school, I was actually kind of a romantic, you know, uh, flowers for the, the lady, open the door for the lady, uh, order the drinks for the lady, order the meal for the lady, you know, all that kind of stuff. Not that they can't do that, but it was just the chivalry that was kind of placed in me from, from seeing other people do that kind of stuff. And there was a real respect and, and an honor that I had as well um, for, for the female that I was with. But the more that pornography took hold, and, and you don't even recognize that this is happening, but the more that pornography took hold of my mind and the more that I needed to be aroused sexually and wanted to have that sexual arousal uh, fulfilled and, and, and kind of completed, um, by some type of sexual activity, um, I just placed that demand on the women uh, that I was with. And so I objectified them. Um, I had a kind of a sense of entitlement. 
And that's kind of how I treated the relationship. And if it didn't happen, it wasn't like I just stopped the relationship and say, I'm going to go get it somewhere else. But it would be extremely frustrating to me until such a time as sex would enter the picture. Um, and so that's pretty much how my relationships went pretty much all through my whole dating life up until the time that I actually got married. Okay. Now, so I'm going to ask you, obviously you did get married and you know, what I know to be true is that this porn addiction affected everything in your life, your family, your ministry, your friends. So tell us a little bit about what happened. Well, I had uh, become uh, a worship leader, which is another word for the director of music um, in kind of the contemporary uh, churches. They call it worship leader. And so I went on staff at the church before I got married um, and, and took over the uh, the music department. This was back in the early 90s. It was about 93 that this happened. And uh, one of the girls that was on the worship team, I was still in this pretty pretty neurotic relationship. That's about the best I can describe it. It went on for five years and I was only really in it right at the end for sex. And then that kind of tailed off and, and she wasn't interested in giving me that unless I was going to actually give a commitment to her. And that's something that I really didn't want to do. It was a very comfortable relationship. And so we ended up breaking up in around early 95. And I should have at that moment taken a break from my relationships, um, kind of got my head together. And, you know, at that time, it was about two years after I started at the church that that other relationship ended. And so even at the, the very outset of my, my full-time job as a minister of music, I'm still engaged in having sexual relationships with uh, somebody that I'm not married to, which is a no-no in ministry. And so that ended early in 1995. And uh, I started to date, uh, which, again, as I said, I should have taken some time, just got my head together, got my place, got myself to a place of wholeness and some healing in, in my emotions and my mental state, but I didn't. I didn't want to be alone. Um, and I felt that uh, that's, I just always had to have a girl in my life. That was how I always felt. And so almost immediately I started dating this girl whom I was attracted to, um, at the church, she actually was part of the music team. She was one of the background vocalists. And so we started to date, and about six months later, we ended up getting married. Everybody around us was saying, oh, you would be such a great fit. Oh, you, you guys are so great together. And, and the truth of the matter is, is we were essentially uh, the last remaining bachelor and bachelorette that made sense for everybody in the church, right? <laughs> so we, we had a lot of we had a lot of these people coming up to us say, oh, I just feel like you guys should be together and all this kind of stuff. And so it, it, it became more, more or less me listening to other people instead of really, really listening to God, according to my faith and, and listening to my own, my own self and my own wants and my own needs. But I didn't want to be alone. And she's a wonderful, wonderful person, still is an amazing person. Uh, and so we ended up getting married. And uh, over the next five years, we had a pretty decent relationship. There was no, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, there's no reason that we should have hit this major roadblock that we did, but it was me. And um, I even objectified her in our marriage. I wanted to demand 
a certain amount of uh, sexual activity, um, demand a certain type of sex that I'd seen in uh, pornography, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. And she felt so uncomfortable with that. And she didn't know what to make of it, but she tried to be this dutiful wife, you know, that would let me do what I wanted to do. Uh, but she, but she absolutely hated it. And um, around 2000, um, and 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 it's a long, long story of an emotional kind of a meltdown that I had as I was planning my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. Some family friends sent a photo in of me in the month and the year that I was born of my mother holding me, a very small infant, and my mother is holding me. And I had never up until that point seen any pictures of my mom holding me as a young child. And I had this major meltdown, and that was kind of the start of this real explosion in my life. And uh, it's just amazing how that stuff can come to call. And I was about 35 years of age at that time. And uh, I, I didn't think too much about it. I thought I dealt with it. I, I had some tears, um, you know, thought I made it through fine, uh, went through everything, had the anniversary party and all that kind of stuff. And I had had a, a little toddler. Uh, a very, very young, uh, not even a toddler, very uh, an infant of my own. Uh, she was born in 2000. And um, and so I, th- this thing was really gnawing at me. This whole emotional feeling was gnawing at me. There was a lot of other dynamics around me and being unhappy at the church um, and my wife really wanting me to stay at the church because that was her security. She wanted to be married to a, a musician. She wanted to be married to a church worship leader. I mean, this was her expectation, stuff that we've talked about over the years. But um, uh, enter another woman who was very broken in her own life, in her own right. And she started coming to the church, was very musical. We knew each other out in the community because she was a singer and I was a singer. And um, she became part of the worship team, the music team at church. And uh, the next thing I know is I'm connecting with her and really connecting with her and talking things out and sharing how I'm just feeling very empty and very burned out. And you know, there's just so much going on and I can't make sense of it all. And I, this isn't what I want church to be for me at least, but I don't know if this is the way it's supposed to be or whatever. And I was having a real spiritual crisis and all of that time that I would talk to my wife about that, it was bringing fear to her because, you know, her world was imploding with that information. With this other girl that I was talking with, she was agreeing with me. She was saying, yeah, I understand what you're saying. I really feel that things need to change and, and yada, yada, this and yada, yada, that. The next thing I know, Carol, we are not just in an emotional affair. I'm actually in bed with this girl. And I'm actually having an outright affair, physical affair, with this girl. And it was around 2000, 2001. And it, and it, and it, it hurt so many people and it wrecked so many people and I ended up losing everything. Uh, I say lose loosely because I actually am the one that made the choice to give up everything. But, you know, when you're in full-time ministry and you're having an affair and you're married, those two things don't work out very well. And so I left the church. And I ended up leaving my family and I was so broken and so empty and so, uh, I don't even know the word to say, um, but everything, everything in my head, nothing made sense in life at that moment in time. All I wanted was peace 
All I wanted was a sense of something fitting right into my world because nothing made sense. And so I chose to chuck everything that I had built up until that moment and, and run away with this other person. And I lost pretty much everything, even my friends that didn't really know how to relate to me at that time. So that's, so I'm gonna that's ask the long and short you, of that story. How long did it take you to figure out that you had been caught up in the excitement and the risk and the the unmet emotional needs, um, how long did it take you to figure out, wow, I just made a big, huge mistake? Well, you know, when you're going through something like that, you, you recognize how destructive it is, especially for other people, uh, especially my wife. At the time, it was hugely destructive for her and her family and for my family, um, but you are so staunch about feeling this is about me. This is about me, and it's what I need. And and so probably <laughs> it took a long time. I, I'll be honest with you. It took a long time. I mean, I ended up getting divorced from my wife around – I signed on the dotted line. We were separated for a few years, but I actually signed on the dotted line in 2004. I actually got married to my wife in 2005. My, the wife, the, the woman with whom I had the affair, I actually ended up uh, marrying her in 2005. But I was still very active in accessing porn on a regular basis. And it, it really it, it really took me about a decade until I actually could start to make sense of everything that had happened to me. I mean, that's a really long time. Like you, you go dark in 2001, 2011, you suddenly show back up on the map and it's all starting to come together and make sense to you. And 2011 was the last time that I actually watched pornography. Um, I had, you know, what I consider in my faith to be in a, a divine encounter with God as a father someone I could never look to as a father, someone who always wants to be looked to as a father because he loves us so much, but I could never look to him as a father. And he literally, I, you know, obviously didn't hear this audibly or anything like that, but I had this real heavy sense. I had just finished watching porn, just finished self-gratifying. I had just been on my knees like I was every single time that I did this, always asking forgiveness you know, the whole of my relationship with God for 35 years was nothing but apologies. I didn't build a relationship with God at all. It was all about everything wrong that I did and everything wrong that I was. And in that day, and it's around, actually around this time, I think it was around 2011, so we're going back seven years now, I had this encounter where I really felt like God was there with me. And he says, you know, what I have for you in the future is really awesome, but you can no longer bring this with you. And oh boy, I really need... understand that. And I, I got to stop you. We have some callers that are, I think, oh, want to ask okay. you or I a question. So let me see. Um, this is Carol Jurgensen. She, you have a question for Maurice? Hi, hi, Carol. Hi, Louise. Um, I I have a question. Um, 
I kind of, I feel you uh, in the sense that I, my, my girlfriend and I, uh, we went to some counseling for like relationship counseling, but instead of getting turned off or turned away from porn, we were uh, counseled to start watching porn together to help strengthen our relationship. And at that time, you know, where, where we live at, it's kind of like a taboo because we're from the Bible Belt. So it was really right. hard for me to go over there and, and, and you know, and, 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 and take the counsel, but I wanted to stay in the relationship. And, you know, we, we, we went and, and talked to a counselor, and they were telling us, you know, giving us advice and how to, uh, talk to each other and hold each other and you know I remember this heavy set uh guy telling you know telling us you know you know what he is talking about oftentimes counselors do they encourage um couples to watch porn to get closer or more comfortable with their sexuality what do you think about right. that well I I can't agree with that at all. I don't condone that at all. I don't offer that as part of my uh, sex addiction counseling that, that I offer. Um, because to me, uh, pornography is the antithesis. It is the complete opposite of true love, real love, uh, real sexuality based upon, you know, real intimacy, real vulnerability with each other. Um, it, it, you know, Carol, sex has become so massive in our society and it's like this huge idol that everybody seems to want to attain and and do it right for some reason and and i try and bring it i try and knock it off this huge pillar and knock it down to the size that it really is yes sex is wonderful it was created by god for us to experience joy with each other in a covenant relationship with each other in a committed relationship with each other but it's one part of our life together. There are so many other things in our life that can bring a sense of total commitment, total honor to each other, listening to each other, helping each other achieve people's, you know, their dreams, um, doing what they can to serve and, and help one another along their journey. Um, and then, then there's this huge, massive balloon called sex that just overwhelms us all the time, time that we really knock that thing back down to size and make it part of our life together, something that is amazing. But but pornography, Carol, is, is complete opposite of what true love and true sexuality is. It's not just about the going through the motions. It's not just about the method of, of physical attraction and physical love. Sex should be built on something that is so wonderful, so beautiful, so sacred, so honoring for each other. And that is like the culmination or the consummation of that relationship. And so I, you know, I got to tell you, friend, um, I, I personally can't agree with that. A lot of people think if you get the sex right, everything else is going to fall into place. And, and I think that's backwards. I, I think. Well, you and, you get, know, one of the things I know, Reese, as a certified sexual addiction therapist, we have been really criticized by um, different groups, especially the um, Association of Sex Education Counselors, who is, they're a wonderful group, but they say that we pathologize porn. 
And my right. experience is, although I am told to be pornography neutral in normal cases, not sex addicts, but in normal marriages, I can't right. hang with that. I don't believe any couple that objectifies other people, I can't believe that that's healthy. So I have to go against my own organization and say, <laughs> well, I understand that that's standard you'd like me to obtain, but I don't personally feel that it's right or healthy, especially for anybody who wants a long-term relationship with somebody, um, let alone single guys. I mean, I just don't think objectifying women or men, depending on their interests, is ever a healthy choice. So it sounds like you and I are on the same page here. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, I would, I would tell my friend to call. Let me check out something else because that was a really good call from our caller. Let's see if we have another question. Do you have a question for Reese? I think there's a bit of a delay here. I guess so. And now we'll ask uh, one other person. Do you have a question for Reese? Yes, hello. Can you hear me? I sure can. Okay. Hi. I, I do have a question. Um, I heard Reese talk about how he no longer, um, he was, I guess you could say, set free from his pornography addiction when he had his encounter with God. But my question is, with so much sexual imagery and input around us in the world today, how do you keep yourself from relapsing into this porn addiction? Um, Boy, that's a great question because it really does require a whole host of recovery tools. Reese, I'll let you answer and then I'll I'll (laughs) give my advice. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you for calling. Um, I, I know it's, it's hard. It's hard to imagine. Um, I, you know, there's, there's a, a few uh, concepts out there about whether you're a lifelong addict once you become an addict. Um, I don't ascribe to that personally. Um, but I tell people that come to me and talk to me about this, that, although I believe that you can get to a place where the power of that pornography doesn't have a hold over you anymore. But I do believe that even though I would not call you a lifelong addict, I would call you a lifelong target. And that obviously comes out of my faith-based belief. Um, And I deal with a lot of people in the faith-based beliefs. You know, it's difficult uh, out there to, um, I mean, we are surrounded by sex everywhere you go. It's in the billboards, it's in any kind of media, on television, movies, um, whatever it is. And, and it does make it hard. And, and guys are very visual, you know, overall, I don't want to say we're, we're the only visual uh, out of the two genders, but I will say we are um, highly vis- uh, visual when it comes to that. And so there are things that will uh, be gratifying to us visually that we have to make choices along the way. If I see something that I know could be sexually gratifying to me, I have to turn away. I have to make these choices along the way to let that go. When I got set free back in uh, 2011, it it was a real major, major turning point for me, especially if if you are faith-based and you do believe that God exists and you do believe that you can have a personal relationship with him. When that happened to me, 
I made the choice at that time, and I understood what that moment in time for me meant. And I, I did not want to go back any longer. I literally, I was so frustrated with how I felt every time I used pornography and I self-gratified. I hated myself. And it got to the point where I just was done hating myself. I didn't want to feel that way anymore. I hated what pornography was doing to me. I hated what pornography stole from me and, and what I chose to let go of and give up uh, because of the effect that pornography had on my life. And it came down to the fact that I, if I was actually going to beat this, that I was going to have to take life minute by minute, second by second, and make the choices to not end me back up in front of that computer again. Now, that sounds easier than what it really was, but I've never accessed porn over these past seven years. I've never initiated going to find pornography. Uh, There has been things that have popped up on the computer from time to time that were just there for a split second, and I would X out of it because I didn't want anything to do with it. I finally got my computer cleaned up from that. But I never wanted to go back, and then I started to realize just and, and Carol, you asked this question a little bit earlier when I started to realize it was around this time when I truly began to realize and look back over my life. And I just saw this wake of destruction of people that I had hurt, that I had objectified, that I demanded uh, sexual uh, favors from or that I demanded sexual behavior from. And it was all about me, 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 me. And from that point on, I found myself wanting to get the help that I needed. I had no idea that this was an addiction. I had no idea there were some groups out there like SA, Sexaholics Anonymous, or Sex Addicts Anonymous, or Love and Sex Addiction Anonymous, and all that kind of stuff. I had no clue that any of that stuff exists. I thought addiction was for marijuana, alcohol, cocaine, heroin. That, that's, that's addiction to me. I had no clue that this pornography even though I felt the struggle of it, I never looked at it as being an addiction. Once I started to do that, it made sense, and I, and I aligned my life in the best way that I knew how before God and before my wife, and I said, I want to honor both of them. And so I had to make minute-by-minute choices. And there were things along the way. There was imagery that would enter my head because, you know, Carol, you, you have all of these substance abuse issues out there in the world today. But if you give that up, eventually that substance leaves your body. You may have some damage, but that substance leaves your body. But with porn, you have that imagery available on recall 24-7 if you should want to do that. And, and so, you know, initially when I started giving this up, that was the battle that ensued, was the mental imagery in my head. And I had to continue to fight and fight and fight until it started to lose its power over me. So that's kind of what happened for me personally. Well, and that's a good point. And what I believe, and that's a great question, caller, what I believe is that um, the brain, after three to five years of really good recovery, it is neuroplastic. And that means that that neuroplasticity allows you to recircuit your brain. Now, I guess I agree with Reese in that, yes, once you have done the work and you've substituted with healthy skills and 
you really have given your brain enough time to recover and develop new neurocircuitry, it's like you're starting all over again, except why would you ever flirt with the drug, with the process addiction, with porn, or any acting out sexual behavior that got you in trouble the first time, a second time? So we really encourage a lifetime of abstinence when it comes to those things that were gateways for unhealthy behavior like pornography, acting out, cheating, affairs, websites, that kind of thing. So I agree with you, Reese, um, (laughs) most definitely that you can retrain your brain. It sure does take a long time. And then I say keep using those tools that are going to keep you safe. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that was a great, um, a great call. Now I want to, I want to just check in with one other person. Um, this is Carol Jurgensen Sheets, and I'm AKA Carol the Coach. Do you have a question for Reese? Yeah, I have a question for Louise. Uh, the uh, is it Louise or Reese? It's Reese. It's Reese. Reese like with an R. Okay. Okay, okay, right on. Um, so, uh, did um, the whole time you were, um, you said you were asking for forgiveness more than getting a, having a relationship with uh, with God. Um, did did he, I mean for me personally, like I was really, I was really confused during my whole time. I, I, I didn't know which way I was swinging. Um, I was into big dicks and cocks. And I really liked sucking guys off. And, um, you know, it's just something about big dicks that I really had to have in my mouth. And, you know, and that wasn't. And, you know, that was thing that I think is, is that obviously you have some difficulty with knowing what your limits are. And because of that, it's so important for you to get into SA or SAA and really um, get the help that you need. I mean, that's part of this show is getting the help that you need. Right. And and being able to talk that out with somebody, because if there is a strong need like that, uh, a strong sexual urge, um, like that. Oh my goodness! Absolutely. If there's that strong urge, then what you have to do is be able to really work diligently at finding out what it is that will make your life different. And that's a whole host of recovery tools. I can't stress that enough. And so one of the things that I'm so happy about is that Reese has opened up this dialogue and he's been able to share his story. And so, hey, Reese, I'm just curious. How did you eventually break free from your own porn and sex addiction? And tell me a little bit about that organization that you started now. Well, um, yeah, I mean – what what happened a little bit earlier when I shared shared that moment in time that I had kind of a divine, uh, what I felt was a very divine appointment with God, um, that was one of the biggest things that 
actually gave me a 180 in life and turned me around. Uh, one of the first things that I started to do was to help other uh, men who were experiencing that same issue. Uh, you know, for a long time, you feel very alone when you're in that addiction, and you don't realize you think everybody else is probably stronger than you are. And I started to become very aware of people in, in my own community, my own circle of friends that were struggling with that. And um, so I actually went out and I got a bachelor's uh, of Christian counseling degree and started to learn a little bit about um, how to approach people with, uh, with addictions. Um, I went through um, CSAT, Certified Sexual Addiction Therapy classes, and learned more about that as well, and uh, actually went on the pastoral side of things, which they call a PSAP instead of a CSAP. Um, but I started getting a lot of training from a spiritual perspective since most of the people I knew in my circles were very were, were Christian-oriented people. Um, so I um, and, and you'll know that's actually part of the 12-step program is is actually having an outflow in your life to serve others and help others with that same addiction that you struggled with. And so that's what I started to do. And then eventually down the road, um, I felt literally that this addiction was probably, if not if not the most silent, it was one of the top silent addictions that we struggle with because there's so many people that don't know that you do that. And so I started the, uh, the silent addiction and it's a nonprofit organization. And um, the main focus of this is reaching people of, of the Christian faith and, and especially and, and more uh, um, specifically people in leadership um, in in the Christian faith, like pastors and music directors and other leaders in the church who are really struggling because most of the time pastors and leaders in churches don't have anybody to talk to. You may think that they do, but they don't have a lot of people to share their uh, downfalls with, with their weaknesses with, because they feel if they show that weakness to the church, then it's not a good thing. And pastors walk through so much with their congregants, their members, their parishioners. They walk through so much brokenness with couples and families and all kinds of stuff like that. And then you find a lot of times when a pastor gets up and has to state that because he's gotten burned out and he has a porn addiction or he had an affair, so often the church just turns their back on him and he has nowhere to go or she has nowhere to go. And it is, it's got to be, and it is a horrible feeling scenario to be in because I felt like I really had no one that I could talk to about this. In fact, the people that I were talking to about this and helping them keep me accountable and, and keep asking me questions and people I trusted in, they went and told the pastor of the church that I was the music director in that I had this problem and this was going on. And, and it exploded and there was no safe place for me. And so the silent addiction came about to offer a safe place for believers in their marriages, especially uh, leadership people in the Christian church uh, in their marriages, not, not to avoid the subject at all, you know, or telling their family at all, but finding a safe place to get to a place of healing and deal with it from then on out. One of the things that, that certified sex addiction therapists are known for is the full disclosure. When a man needs to tell his wife or a wife needs to tell his, her husband about all of the sexual activity that has entered into the relationship. But, but getting, getting those people to a place 
where they're healthy again, where they feel like they can trust somebody with all of the, the truth about their lives that they can't give to someone else. That's a huge, huge part of what the silent addiction is all about. Um, just creating a safe place and knowing that it comes with a guy that has walked through it, has lost everything, and is still out there, you know, standing upright, <laughs> you know, putting one yeah. foot in front of the other. And, and I want to offer hope. And uh, the really cool thing that has kind of – it's starting to be birthed out of the silent addiction is this ministry um, between my, my wife and my ex-wife. And it's something that we never really saw coming, but over the years, which it's almost been 20 years, I can't even believe where the time has gone, over that time, there has been real reconciliation between my ex-wife and my wife and, and me. And my, my ex-wife stayed single after we divorced for another 10, 11 years before she started uh, or before she got married, she had dated a little bit, but they didn't work out. And she met the man that she was going to marry. And um, they got married about three years ago. And, um, and we have continually worked on our relationship to such a point. And, and because, you know, because of the dynamic of the children that were involved, because I have two children with her, um, you know, we really, really worked hard at being civil with each other, preferring each other, honoring each other, respecting each other, helping each other. Um, you know, it was kind of almost like being married but not being married. And um, we had built this relationship so so far, and then this man that, that she married um, came into the relationship. I actually knew him. I mean, she knew him too, but um, as friends, and I knew him from years ago because he was a music director at a church in my area, and we had done a lot of stuff together, and uh, I couldn't have asked for a better stepdad for my kids. He's an amazing, amazing man and a strong Christian man and a very uh, a man of integrity and character when it comes to his Christian faith. And we started talking about this and recognizing that so many marriages that go through divorce, they pit the children against the parents and they pit the children against each other. And, and it's so chaotic and it's so dysfunctional and it's so full of hate and anger and hurt. And, and although, you know, we did definitely have some of that at the outset, the bottom line is that we were going to make the choice to have the best possible relationship that we could. We weren't going to say anything bad about the other parent in front of our children. And over time, yeah, and, and over time, we just, we just got to the place where um, everybody started looking inside of our lives together and saying, you guys have a story here. And we started feeling like, well, we have this really great relationship, and I don't know if it's a story. I don't know what, you know, I just hope other people can glean something from us when they see our relationship, but but now it's looking as though we may actually be going and building something to go into churches, uh, maybe even to conferences, you know, where, where it's appropriate to talk about this matter. And the funny thing is um, my ex-wife, my now wife and me never had divorced parents, but my ex-wife's new husband came out of a divorced family and he has this story to tell coming from a divorced family walking into a blended family 
and 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 he i mean he's gone through so much uh in his life and he can bring a whole uh almost like a you know the end of it all uh, type of scenario right. to this when we tell our story. So I would tell my addiction story, and one of the other really crazy things that I do, Carol, <laughs> is when I talk with when I talk with men, um, because um, I've done this with my wife where we've talked with men and women. We've done it separately. We won't. We don't want to trigger uh, anybody into this thing. But I've gone and, and spoke to a, a couple of groups of men about my story that I shared here, and. And for those people who are faith-based and understand scripture, there's a scripture in the Bible in the New Testament, you know, kind of after Jesus, and it talks about being seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And it's this cool concept of a kingdom like we're kind of ruling with Jesus, right? It's kind of this whole Camelot kind of scenario, right? And what I do is I, when I talk to these people, and I know that's not the end all, I can't just go to some conference and say, ta-da, you're all healed. You know, there has to be follow-up. There has to be continual accountability. But for those people who want to take the first step and literally leave their sex addiction behind or their struggle with pornography behind, I actually take a real sword and I have them take a knee before me and I knight them like the queen, you know, would knight Paul McCartney or something like that. And uh, or, or Elton John or whatever, but I actually and right. I actually do this, and I, I, I in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, it's kind of like baptizing, right? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I call you back to your seat in the heavenlies, and I call you back to having a place of authority in your Christian faith. And oh. now take that authority and use it wisely. Use it wisely over your own individual life. Use your authority wisely over your family and over your community and over the people, uh, your extended family and other people that you know, maybe that you work with or go to school with, and and understand Please, that. I'm telling you, you are amazing. You are just helping people <laughs> to to renew their sense of self and their relationship with God and their sense of belief that they can make changes in their life. I just saw what time it is. We're past oh, our time. I have got to have you on again because there are other questions I want to ask you, like how can people get a hold of you? I know that they can go to your website, www.thesilentaddiction.com, and they can find out more about the incredible work that you're doing. But will you come back on the show? I would be honored very much, so please, anytime. I do. I so appreciate your information and your attitude and how you have turned this thing around. I really believe that recovery is all about getting healthy and then deciding how one can fulfill a purpose or do that 12-step work, which is, you know, giving back in ways that we have no idea are inside of us. So you are an inspiration to everybody, and I am having you back on, I promise. (laughs) All right, great. Great. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome, and talk to you real soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, this is Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and that is an inspirational story of a man who figured it out, who learned early that he had a compulsive illness, and he's figured out not only how to break free from his pornography addiction, but also how to give back and to heal others. He is a peace app, 
And that is like myself. I'm a CSAT. I'm a you know certified sexual addictions therapist. Well, he's a pastoral sexual addiction therapist. So I highly recommend that you contact him if you're looking for that person that has been there, done that, and with a spiritual awakening can give you hope, strength, and recovery. So, hey, now, got to go. We're running over. This is uh, Sex Hope with Carol the Coach, and as I say at the end of every show, and by the way, thank you to all the callers, there will only be one of you at all times. I want you fearlessly to have the courage to be yourself. And if you're waiting on the line to talk to Reese, you can email me at carol at carolthecoach.com, and I will certainly pass on the questions that you had. Until then, I will see you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. <laughs>